tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing, man. Yeah, that's remarkable. Alex, I'd like to start this uh, here episode with a bit of business, a bit of uh, bookkeeping, a little bit of finance for our listeners at home, mm. and for you, my my co-owner here, <laughs> right? co-owner of Tipping Pitches Media. I would like to start this week by just talking about the three different concerts that we went to this month, because if we talk about them all on the pod, all together, um, and we make them a regular feature of the show, the more we talk about them the better the justification is for um, spending the, the the podcast money on future concert tickets. <laughs> right. We're working our way there. I think we're, I think we're almost there. You know, this is like, we're going on three straight weeks of concert reviews in the pod. You're right. We are basically, we, we, need, to, we need to re-categorize the podcast as a music show on Apple Podcasts. And I don't think anybody would be mad. Uh, I don't think so either. I mean, we haven't been a baseball podcast for like three years anyway. I feel like music has probably been about 20% of our discussion or so over the last few years anyway, at least. So yeah, yeah I think I think we're there. Uh, I, I know that the, the shareholders who are listening right now may have input or thoughts. It's going to be a little bit harder to get very to get an, to get an artist from every concert that we go to on the pod. You know, like Steve is is now a recurring guest. And I think right. that I feel pretty confident in saying that he's willing to come back, you know, every once mm-hmm. in a while. Yeah. Whenever we were going to see a pup show, you know, we're like, hey, Steve, come on through. Let's chat on the pod. But um, I, I don't I don't know for certain, but I don't think that Haley Williams would say yes to coming on the Tipping Pitches podcast. Yeah. I'll, honestly, don't know that I would say yes to that. Don't know that I would be <laughs> able to conduct an interview with Haley Williams. Do you think is Taylor or Haley more likely? Because... Taylor York? No, no. Oh, Taylor, Taylor Swift. Swift. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. What, what kind of question is that? <laughs> because the answer is Taylor. When was the last time you heard Taylor Swift speak in spoken voice for longer than three minutes? That's an honest question. It, not in a documentary that she is an executive producer <laughs> of, by the way. Okay. Well. Like 2009? All I'm saying is that Given the recent drama, she likely knows what uh, what Cumtown is, which means she likely knows what Chapo Trap House is, which <laughs> means we're like inching closer. Yes, if she does go to that page on Apple Podcasts, we might be one of the recommended podcasts underneath. Like that is not a totally out of the question. And I this don't know what that huge. says about us. I just want to say, like, I, <laughs> there are a handful of things the- wrong on either side of that equation. I would like to. F- put my foot down on the fact that we are not part of the Dirtbag Left podcasting trend. We are not. We talk about sports in a serious and professional and journalistic manner. That is my story and I am sticking to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a great podcast for that to be my story because this podcast is actually serious and journalistic. We had a wonderful, wonderful, one of my favorite conversations in a long time with uh, Neil DeMoss who runs Field of Schemes, the blog, wrote Field of Schemes, the book in 1998. Um, contributes to places like Defector and Hellgate and Baseball Prospectus. Uh, Neil is the stadiums guy, you know, all about funding stadiums, development of stadiums. He's an an incredible, intrepid reporter on this topic, and we've used his research on the show in the past, and so we figured it was high time to actually invite him on. You know, like, the, the, 
the elevator pitch for this episode is kind of like build the urbanist dream ballpark, whatever that actually means. We don't actually really do that. We just kind of talk about some of the basically like lay out a rubric for what is like uh, something close to an ethical stadium in 2023 and why some of these things seem so far away, so far from achievability. Um, it was a great conversation. I had, a, I had a great time talking to Neil and really thankful for all the time. We're also going to hit a little bit of the Bally Sports, San Diego, Padres, that news that came out. Uh, but before we do, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Basley. And you are listening to a podcast three degrees removed from Taylor Swift, Tipping Pitches. Thank you to new patrons, James, Zachary, Marissa, Mark, and Brenna, and whoever signed up in the in the time between recording and publishing of this podcast. We are recording this podcast on June 1st uh, because my sister is getting married this weekend, so I, I am attending that and unable to record the podcast, so we banked it with Neil. If anything happens between now and then, I apologize, uh, but I actually don't because this podcast is robust, you know? Yeah. We've got a lot to talk about. we got we got Rob quotes. You know, we got a great we got a great interview and we have a Paramore show to review. So that's that's what else do you need? What did you think? First Paramore experience live. It was my first Paramore experience live. Uh they put on a banger of a show. They really do. They they had the place rocking. Uh the place being Madison Square Garden. The place being Madison Square Garden face scanned by Jim Dolan. Well, okay. So I have a question. Uh-huh. What what was the it's when you said face scanners, I <laughs> I assumed that like we would be doing that as we went in. But is it yeah. just kind of like they have cameras that are it's I think like so. it's like the like Mission Impossible thing where they're like enhance image and yes. then it's like and then they you and see then it the brings person. up your face and your rap sheet. Right, yeah. exactly. Rap sheet. Okay. Talked about Jim on a podcast once. <laughs> Is generally anti the surveillance state, right? Exactly. Okay, I just wanted to know. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't think it's anything fancier than that. Though I do think they have like clear entrances that incorporate some of this technology. I'm actually not really sure. Entering into Madison Square Garden is truly one of the more chaotic experiences you can have uh, in the world. They're just like everybody's yelling. It does kind of seem like you're going into the back entrance of a cafeteria. And then you're just there. It is also the, the world's most I've, famous I've arena. ever entered an arena in my life. It was like, are we going in the right direction? And then we were like at our seats. You got to hand it to James. You really got to hand it to James. You really do. Uh, phenomenal concert. If there was anybody listening who was at that show, uh, we shared that space together. And <laughs> I feel great about it. I, I feel great about the fact that you got to, to, to see me see one of my favorite bands. I know. That that is like a connection, you know. Later this summer, we're gonna go to the Coliseum together, the baseball stadium that you grew up going to, and this is kind of like a connection back into my childhood. I I first saw Paramore in concert in middle school, seventh mm-hmm. grade. I had just gotten dumped earlier in the day. I got the flu. I think I've told this story on the podcast. So now we've bridged eras, and it feels great. We really have. Um, vibes are high. Vibes are not high at Bally Sports right now. <laughs> They're being sued, ruled against by multiple judges. They're being lambasted by Rob Manfred in the press, which uh, is a fate worse than death. Um, also, a fate that I wish that we will, will get. I hope that we will oh get one God. day. I would love to be lambasted by Rob Manfred. In the <laughs> I press. welcome it. <laughs> uh, if you don't know, 
the Valley Sports bankruptcy has spread its wings to San Diego. They have missed payments to the Padres, and MLB has now taken back the broadcasting rights. They have guaranteed that they will make up at least 80% of the money that is owed to the Padres um, by charging uh, $19.99 a month through Major League Baseball television to people in the San Diego area. It is an, and is, it is an added cost, an extension um, onto what MLB TV already costs if you live in that area. If you're out of market, there was kind of some confusion in the wording of this at the beginning. If you're out of market, you will still be able to access Padres games. Uh, here's the quote from Rob. <laughs> Just a banner of a quote in the Evan Drellick article. Quote, RSNs, whoever the hell owned them, had made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in profit off these long-term agreements. To turn around and say, quote, we're going to squeeze you and make you take lower rights fees didn't sit very well with us. First of all, such an un-Rob Manfred I, I know. Quote. We got Rob. He's hot under the hood. They, That's got him, like, they got him mad. Like, this is, he's channeling his best, like, Joe Biden and trying to be, like, relate. He's like, listen, who, listen, Jack, whoever John. the hell, hell owned these damn RSNs is better uh, get prepared for the fire to come their way. <laughs> listen, Jack. Did you see that Joe, uh, Joe Biden fell earlier today? No. Is he okay? I think so. Yeah, I think he's fine. <laughs> Just thought I'd ask. <laughs> yeah, Rob's mad. Uh, I have a question for Rob. Mm-hmm. Who was on the other side of those agreements? Right. Yeah, who, who was making the other hundreds of millions of dollars? Who was also profiting during all that? Who was sacrificing access to watching baseball in exchange for those same hundreds of million dollars of profit? Were there... Was there anybody on the other side of it, or was it just the RSNs making the money? I'm actually not sure. He's so pure. <laughs> he's just so, you know, he gets out there and he's like, look, I, if I pretend hard enough that I don't know what an RSN is, the public might be on my side. Yeah. Like, if I the, burrow into my hole deep enough, they'll come with me. Who's the only person that has a lower pr- approval rating than Rob Manfred and the MLB owners? Regional cable executives. <laughs> yeah. He's finally found someone to punch down to. <laughs> Congrats, Rob. You did it. Um, do you have like a, a resounding take coming out of this? The fact that... So the Padres are the first team that MLB is going to distribute their rights and actually charge for um, that I've seen so far. The the nineteen ninety nine a month extension in Major League, t- Major League MLB TV is the first of its kind. Though not all that surprising, uh, we kind of predicted that this is exactly how it would go. This is the the future is now. Uh, do you have like a resounding take from all of this? I don't know that I have a take. I I saw a lot. There was a lot of grumbling over the fact that Padres fans are going to be charged twenty bucks a month to stream games through MLB TV. That's a lot. I thought yeah. it was going to be like nine ninety nine. That's it's like a, twenty bucks a month is more than Netflix. <laughs> Let's be real here. <laughs> I agree. I mean, we can quibble with the price point all day long, but like, I I don't know. It does feel like we're moving towards a world in which, like, all of a sudden, if you live in San Diego, you can watch Padres games blackout free through MLB TV, which is like two years ago, a world I think we couldn't have even conceived of. So it's like, I think there's going to be a lot of rockiness to the rollout in the coming years quote-unquote rollout aka i don't know various bankruptcies right like it's very telling my stuff out through bankruptcies i know like it's very telling that like none of this is actually happening until 
someone else makes us stumble. Like MLB was never going to be the initiator in this sort of thing. They were going to wait and see where the chips fell. But uh, I don't know. I have I'm I'm not losing any sleep over the RSN executives and their wallets. I think that like it it heralds maybe a better future for for streaming even if we're not there yet. It does feel like it removes some of the more Byzantine hurdles that there were in this process. Like Oh, like all of a sudden, we don't actually need to have blackouts, and you can go right. over like the top. Like you can off. actually go straight to the consumer. It's like how how did this happen? This thing that we've been talking about for a decade, um, but like they couldn't have even they couldn't have even continued it for free for half a season, like in the middle of this bankruptcy. I mean, I know that they're trying to recuperate some of that money so that they can not take the full hit of the Padres' rights fees, but like you know that MLB has that money in the vault or whatever, like that in the central MLB bank account, the central MLB fund that will float teams money when they need it to extort a city and move stadiums or when they need it because a cable company goes bankrupt or when they need it because a crypto executive runs off to a country that won't extradite him, for example. Um, You know, so like, they couldn't have even done that little gesture of goodwill where they don't charge the Padres fans until 2024. I mean, it's like they they had it ready to go. 1999, they knew the price point. They paid yeah. a McKinsey consultant to figure out what they should charge in order to actually make up enough of that um, 80% that they're going to guarantee the Padres without actually pissing off too, too many fans so that not enough will sign up for it. Like, it was already ready. And uh, this, like, faux outrage against the RSNs trying to renegotiate this stuff when they've been telegraphing that they were going to do that for years because they're spoiled brats spoiled by the sports leagues by the way uh it just it doesn't track for me personally right i mean they spent the offseason setting up a department to do this exact thing right I know. so the, remember the when idea- they were like hiring the blackout czar <laughs> right exactly. who got that gig why didn't i get that gig the blackout czar if anyone knows you could DM, have applied dm's open i know do you think it was one of those like easy LinkedIn applies? Just like pr- click to apply. Right, like just you didn't have to fill out a cover letter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so this this next segment with Neil Damas, um, the genesis of it was um, actually a DM from a listener uh, back in November. Um, that listener is named Annie. Uh, she wrote in to share a YouTube video um, from the YouTube account City Nerd uh, ranking the ten. Uh, the 10 most urbanist baseball stadiums and explaining urbanism through the concept of baseball stadiums, uh, which is a really cool video. We've linked to it in the description. And Annie was asking us what our thoughts were on this video. And maybe we could talk about that during the off season. Uh, we actually saved this podcast for this summer, <laughs> even though the <laughs> the uh, season is raging on. Alex and I, as we have discussed on the show a lot, have quite a bit of travel. We're doing a lot. We're running around. We're going to concerts. We're going to weddings. We're doing all these sorts of things. And so... Uh, felt like it was a good time to kind of do one of these more uh, evergreen uh, episodes, exploring kind of some of the the animating, the animating like structures of the show, like of the conversations that we have week in and week out. Kind of doing like an episode that can stand up and support some of these um, support some of these like long held opinions that we have. Um, and Neil is such an expert in this in this field that we decided that we would have him on to discuss the idea of urbanism and ballparks and stadium development and a little bit about the A's and a little bit about the stadiums of yesteryear that we pined for now. 
Um, and it, it went really great. So I'm really excited for everybody to hear it. Alex, is there anything else about kind of like this topic that you wanted to uh, set the table with before we get into our conversation with Neil? No, I think this was a really valuable discussion. As you mentioned, I personally learned a ton. Uh, and, I th- and I think it, it at least left me with some really sort of interesting questions to ponder about the responsibility of teams to the cities in which they they exist and kind of how we can and sort of how we can push beyond the sort of top level idea of of publicly funded ballparks bad privately funded good and think more critically about what it's like for stadiums to really integrate themselves in their communities and and to really ask ourselves what the community gets in return right and yeah. so i th- i think this conversation illuminated illuminated that a lot for me and and i hope that uh it does for the listeners as well i just think we have, we have such a limited not we like you and me on this podcast but like right we're good we're, we're we <laughs> we in like in the in the arena of sports discourse have such a limited imagination about what a stadium can be and what a stadium can do and the way that that works out in practice is that most of these stadiums end up being like hundreds of thousands of tons of concrete that 81 baseball games get played in a year with three concerts and that's it. And like the other 250 days though, the stadiums are not really doing anything except absorbing heat and accelerating climate change, you know? So like I, it's particularly interesting to me in light of the fact that the A's are are trying to pull one of these over. And we talk about that a little bit in the show. Um, or we talk about that a little bit in the interview with Neil. Um, and, you know, particularly interesting in the context of other sports leagues, not using as much public funds and um, different sports leagues, seemingly caring, caring more about the notion of like a, a green stadium, like a climate net zero stadium, even though that's kind of like a myth, but um, I don't know. There are a ton of strands that we could pull even further. I'm excited to talk more about this topic in the future, perhaps with Neil, perhaps with other people. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's just get into our conversation with Neil Damas, uh, Field of Science. We are now pleased to be joined by Neil Damas, like Damas on the trees and the rocks, as he uh, instructed us how to pronounce it. Neil, thank you so much for joining Tipping Pitches. Well done and glad to be here. Uh, we're really excited to talk to you. Uh, a few months ago, we got a, a DM from a listener who shared a video uh, with us from a YouTube account called City Nerd. And he was ranking basically the top 10 urbanist ballparks. And so we set out to kind of like do an episode, kind of like building the dr- quote unquote dream urbanist ballpark, whatever that actually means. There kind of is no right answer to this question. But, you know, given all of your work, we wanted to talk to you um, because we wanted to talk about, you know, urbanist in practice, but also like urbanist in the development stage. And since so much of your work is focused on, you know, the funding for these stadiums, the planning for these stadiums, how they exist kind of politically in communities, we wanted to talk to you. But um, for the listeners at home who, you know, who have maybe followed a little bit at Field of Schemes and seen your blog posts and seen your writing at Baseball Prospectus, can you just kind of like give a background how you carved out this like very specific niche that is like super relevant and super useful to a podcast like ours? Yeah, totally fell into it. Um, this was uh, in the mid-1990s, and my co-author on the book, Field of Schemes, Joanna Kagan, and I 
um, we're both working on a little political zine in Brooklyn um, called Brooklyn Metro Times that we and a bunch of other people had started. And uh, we were looking for stories to write and saw, oh, well, you know, look, the Cleveland Browns are trying to get uh, several hundred million dollars from the city of Cleveland for a new stadium at the same time that the Yankees are trying to get money from New York City from, for a new stadium. And, you know, New York City was closing libraries and Cleveland schools were in receivership. And we thought, what a funny coincidence. This will make a great thousand word article, right? Um, I'm from New York. Joanne's originally from Cleveland. So we start researching and uh, and very quickly, I, I remember there distinctly there was a conversation on the phone where one of us said, uh, I just had like an hour and a half conversation with a woman in Milwaukee. And some of the others said, I just got a 70 page fax from Seattle. And we said, you know, maybe this is a bigger story than we're realizing. So, uh, yeah, we started researching it and it turned into, you know, more articles and then eventually into the book Field of Schemes. And then we started what we originally thought would be a you know short-lived uh, website to do little updates of anything that happens to happen you know after the book comes out and 25 years later <laughs> here we are uh jo- joanna has fortunately retired from this she's gone off to do other things but uh i'm still uh still wrangling the website and dealing with stadium deals that seem remarkably unchanged from 25 to 30 years ago yeah, so that's what I was going to was going to ask is like obviously the blog is relevant enough to still be around today. The the we just we're just talking about the Oakland Day Stadium, um which is a whole saga unto itself. Um but I'm kind of curious how you've seen the the landscape of sort of ballpark economics change over the years as we've transitioned out of the the sort of I guess, mall parks era of like Camden Yards and Oracle towards these big sort of multi-purpose, uh, what do they call them? Mixed-use developments. Um, how have you kind of seen the the shape of all that change in your time covering it? I mean, it's interesting. There are definitely some changes, right? Like like you said, the, the sort of ballpark district thing has become way more popular. Um, there are maybe certain funding mechanisms like, you know, let's use tax kickbacks instead of money up front because that looks a little bit better. Um, definitely using state-of-the-art clauses, right, to say, oh, the city has to continue to pay for upgrades to this, if, you know, to keep it in line with other top stadiums. That's something that's used a lot more than before. But honestly, you know, I'm amazed. I mean, again, we went into this way back when thinking we're sort of catching this moment in history. And there's, you know, one chapter in the book, uh, The Art of the Steel, that talks about sort of the stadium playbook um, and, you know, what the different mechanisms that they use, you know, threatening to move, claiming it will be a big economic boon, um, you know, trying to rush it through the legislature, you know, in a matter of days, you know, before anybody notices it. Um, And you know, when we revised the book years later, and as we continue to, you know, as I continue to do the website and other articles, it's amazing how much hasn't changed, you know? I mean, really, the playbook is, is identical, and I think it's because it continues to work, you know? Um, I think 30 years ago, or 35 years ago, team owners hit upon a formula, which was, if we play cities off against each other and, you know, make local officials promises of, you're going to get economic development, or if you don't, by the time anybody notices, you'll be out of office. Um, you know, and it, it continues to work, you know. And again, it doesn't happen everywhere. We just saw recently the uh, Arizona Coyotes get turned down for a new arena on a, in a public vote. But it works often enough that I don't think that the sports industry is going to change 
its tactics until, you know, something really dramatically changes about politics in this country. Do you think that there's anything that any reason that Major League Baseball is uniquely suited to executing this playbook? So, you know, we're we're a ostensibly like a a leftist baseball podcast that cares about these things. But so we talk about like the other sports leagues and how they execute all similar playbooks in terms of the owners. They share strategies and whatnot um, in terms of like leveraging politicians, for example. But given that baseball is kind of like the oldest sport in America, it for at, at its beginning is kind of like the most directly urban sport in America, just because of the way that the ballparks were built and needed to be accessible walking before the advent of automobiles. Like, do you think that there's anything about the legacy of Major League Baseball that makes them execute this style of plan in a different way than other leagues? I mean, I guess I would say that the one thing that works both for them and against them is that fans of baseball tend to care about the stadiums a little bit more than other sports, right? You know, I mean, obviously, football fans care about where it's played and basketball fans and hockey, soccer. But, you know, the attachment to state, baseball stadiums just because they're so unique and so, you know, there's there's so much that goes along with the history of the team, right? Um, that that makes fans care a little bit more about it. So that both enables you to sell that sell it as, oh, you know, we can have a nicer stadium like these other teams have. Um, and this is going to be something that's a real benefit to the fans, but also means you get more pushback against uh, uh, tearing down old stadiums, right? So, you know, you certainly still have Fenway Park and Wrigley Field in a way that you wouldn't necessarily in other sports um, because there was attachment to those. So, um, and again, I think the other thing with baseball is that one thing it's done very well is to place teams in the largest markets, right? I mean, there are not any green bays in baseball and there are not, you know, uh, a lot of major cities since Washington got the nationals, right? There aren't major cities that are missing teams. Um, so that's, you know, to their credit, but it also makes it a little bit harder to pull off move threats, right? And they still do it. But, you know, it's not like when every team in the NFL used to threaten to move to Los Angeles because they could, um, or even when every team in, the, in baseball threatened to move to Washington because they could, you know, now it's harder, you know, I mean, the Brewers are sort of making noise about, well, you got to, you know, give us a stadium upgrades if you want to keep the team. It's like, where are you going to go? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I guess you could go to Nashville, but is that really an improvement? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the threats feel so empty when you kind of look at them on their face and then you realize that like, they're very meaningful to about seven politicians in every single city. (laughs) (laughs) Um, are there throughout kind of your, your research and the work that you've done, are there particular examples of cities that you think have either excelled at sort of balancing the, the development of like sports stadiums versus like the community needs are there are there ones that stand out or ones in your mind that ring as particular uh cautionary tales i'm afraid to credit anybody because i'll end up jinxing it right i mean years ago i used i used to say minnesota you know minnesota is the poster child for holding the line on you know putting money into sports stadiums no matter how many times the vikings and twins come back and then the vikings and twins came back (laughs) one more time and got everything that they wanted right um, on the flip side, Seattle used to be the example of a city that you know gave its teams whatever it wanted, whatever they wanted. Um, and then after a few times like that, they actually passed a law, you know, limiting the amount of subsidies and um, you know just not, not preventing them, but sort of putting some guardrails on it, um, and managed to uh, you know to get uh, the Kraken without putting up a whole lot of public money. 
So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard. Um, I would definitely say Indianapolis has not had a good time of it um, just because they've put so much money into both the Pacers and the Colts buildings and then continue to put it in over and over and over again uh, because they've signed really bad leases that have enabled the teams to say, oh, thank you for the arena. Now we're going to leave again if you don't give us a new lease. Oh, thanks for the money you give us for the new lease. Now we're going to leave for real if you don't give us more money. Um, so, so yeah, um, it's, uh, it's, I imagine that whoever, whoever is, has been the, the sucker is going to end up eventually smartening up and whoever has, you know, held the line is eventually going to end up, uh, end up in a bad situation. It's been funny to watch over kind of like the last, so we've been doing this podcast for almost six years, but we've obviously kind of done our homework a little bit on these sorts of stories over the over the 21st century and it's just it's funny to watch this as a case study of some cost fallacy for these different governments it's just like well we did already give them 500 million dollars last time and if we lost them after that well then people are going to be doubly mad as us <laughs> and it, that that way doubly mad at us and then that kind of just playing out to the owners realizing that they can just continue to ask for money because there will be some city somewhere and maybe that city is las vegas or maybe that city is Probably not Montreal, but maybe that city is somewhere in Florida or Nashville or whatever who can can sell this as like a big shiny new thing that is um, ripe for quote unquote economic development, whatever that actually means in this case. Yeah, but there doesn't even have to be a city. It's the amazing thing, right? You know, the Yankees got a new stadium by alluding to, well, if we don't uh, if we don't get a new stadium, so if we can compete with the Baltimore Orioles, which I swear was what they said, <laughs> as crazy as that sounds, we could move to Charlotte. You know, I mean, it, it's like not even plausible enough to be a, you know, bad movie. And yet this is what actually happened. So, you know, it's, it's about giving cover, right? You know, you want the politicians to be able to say, well, of, I did give away half a billion dollars. But of course, I had to do it because I couldn't risk the team leaving town. So there has to be sort of like a, you know, plausible deniability where they can say, well, you know, this is why we did it. Um, and I think, you know, it's the same thing we're seeing with the A's right now with, with Las Vegas. You know, I mean, n- none of the people in Las Vegas who are saying it's going to create, have money rain from the sky and there will be, you know, jobs for everyone. Everyone will have five jobs available. Um, nobody actually thinks that there, anyone's going to believe that. But if you just throw enough at that, of that at the wall, right, then it, it gives cover for the elected officials to say, you know, who want to vote for it, but are afraid of getting, you know, uh, uh, their you know, attacked and, and um, they can at least say, well, this isn't the ideal situation, but, you know, I felt like I had to do it in order to make sure we had a team. So, yeah, it, it's something that actually I've been thinking a lot about because I, again, when, when we talk about stadium developments, um, there's a lot of talk about the economics of it and how are we going to pay for it, right? Who's going to foot the bill? What are the special tax districts yes. that are going to be created? I had to bring it up. Well, right? By the way, so we need to we need to create a drinking game for the listeners of the Tipping Pitches podcast that anytime Alex says special tax districts, you take a drink. And anytime Alex says, I thought I would never have to talk about special ta- tax districts again, you finish your drink. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> If, yeah, I'm if, if, so, if somebody makes a mistake of uh, of doing that with uh, with your podcast and then on my blog in a row, <laughs> they would be an alcoholic in no time. But but it it really is like like I think we get really mired in conversations around like you know the 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 cost of it all, right? And I think that sometimes it it maybe um, 
I don't know, misses the forest for his trees a little bit in that recognizing it's one part of this bigger part of a puzzle, right? And and it maybe elides the question of how do teams actually in good faith engage with cities that they want to build ballparks in, right? Aside from who's paying for it, who is actually benefiting from it, right? Is this something that you kind of think about in your writing? And how do you sort of square those two ideas when thinking about how sports teams should, should approach these issues? I mean, sure, absolutely. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do a stadium right and to do it wrong. Um, and, you know, you can do the funding right or wrong. You can do the design right or wrong. You can do the urban design in terms of how it fits into, right? I mean, you know, there are certainly examples of stadiums that got you know, were well, you were funded according to a fair formula, but they put them in the wrong place. Right. So, you know, you have to schlep all the way to the middle of nowhere to get to them. And it's, um, and there's the opposite, you know, I mean, I'm a Mets fan and the, uh, deal that New York put in for, uh, for, uh, uh, you know, paying for the new stadium was fairly horrible in terms of both upfront money and, you know, funneling a whole bunch of money that parking money that was otherwise going to the city to go to the team, um, and tax exempt bonds and all the usual stuff. Um, I think they did a decent job of, of designing the stadium, you know, certainly compared to the new Yankee stadium where I, after I first went to the two of them, cause I opened the same year, right? 2009. And after I went to the, to the two of them, the people asked me, what do you think of them? I said, honestly, the difference is that the Mets had the good sense to stain their cinder blocks, brick colored. Right, <laughs> which you wouldn't yes. think of as a, as a large thing, but at least they made the effort to be like, we're going to build this big hulking stadium, right? But we're going to make it feel like a stadium. Whereas the Yankees went to this feeling like, we're the Yankees. We don't have to care how our fans feel. We're going to make it look like a you know monument to commerce, and you know <laughs> it will be gray and steel and just you know about uh, transferring money to us. God, so, that was just that was one of the most validating 90 seconds in the history of this podcast <laughs> because I have been saying that since the second I walked into New Yankee Stadium. It looks like a concrete palace. It's so ugly. It's like a business park in a suburb. I just can't stand it. So thank you, Neil. Thank well, you. Well, you know what? Lontros, the uh, the COO of the Yankees said when they were designing, he said, we want this to be like a three-star hotel that happens to have a ballpark in the middle of it. And I mean, I want to say they succeeded. <laughs> Not in a good way. <laughs> Um, but on the other hand, you know, Yankee Stadium, by virtue of the fact of where it is, right, that they built yeah. it next to the old one, um, is part of a, you know, a, it's fairly well knit with, with its community, right? You know, I mean, you've got all those little diners and uh, and bars and donut shops and things like that up and down 161st Street. Um, so it actually is part of a neighborhood and a neighborhood that grew up with the previous stadium, but with the Yankees there. Um, whereas the Mets are in a parking lot in the middle of nowhere on a train line at least. Um, But you know, there's not a lot to do around there and there's, it's not uh, integrated with the surrounding neighborhood at all, unless you try and save money on parking by going and parking in Corona, which I, you know, highly recommend and you can grab some food before going into the game. It's cheaper, but you know, I mean, again, there's, there's, there's so many ways in which these things can be done well and poorly, even at the same time. Yeah. Tell me if you agree with this kind of characterization of how ballpark development, the era of baseball ballpark developments, like there's the early days where they're building stadiums, like kind of pre-car boom, where it's all all has to be walkable or accessible via public transit. And that's like the, you know, the turn of the 20th century stadiums. And we have a couple leftovers um, from that era in terms of um, Wrigley Field and in terms of Fenway. 
Um, and then like kind of in the middle of the 20th century, there's like the, the more so car focused, big parking lots, big, um, like Coliseum style, uh, stadiums. And then, uh, kind of like in the 1990s, you know, the Orioles start the trend of the downtown ballpark, so to speak, Camden Yards becomes, uh, uh, you know, kind of throwing it back to that like 19 early 1900s era where the ballpark is like right there in the middle of the city. You can walk to it. It's a lot of brick. It's very beautiful. And nowadays we're kind of in that era where the downtown ballpark is like the sexy thing to build. Um, and maybe in practice is a little bit better for the people actually going to it. But I feel like now the ways that it gets, gets funded and the way the people who it actually benefits, like you were alluding to Alex, are maybe not always, uh, as pure of heart as they would like you to believe. So, are, do you do you agree with those kind of eras? And um, if so, like, do you think that we're headed in a, the right direction at least with getting back to the more like downtown accessible stadiums? Yeah, I think I would fine tune it a little bit. Um, and and the turn of the nineteenth into the twentieth century stadiums, right, were about the expansion of the cities, right. And in fact, a whole lot of the like late 19th century stadiums were built by people who owned streetcar lines, right? And they were like, we're going to put this way at the end of the streetcar line, still in the city, right? But on the streetcar line, so people have to pay fares on my streetcar in order to go watch baseball. Um, so you had a lot of that. Again, Yankee Stadium was built in, you know, at the same time the subway was expanded up to the Bronx. Um, and so it was all about, you know, the expansion of urban transit and the expansion of cities and more people moving from rural areas to cities um, and sort of taking advantage of that concentration of population. Um, the post-war stadiums that were, um, you know, sort of the concrete donuts, right? You know, the ones that were sort of mm-hmm. mo- more multi-purpose were about, um, I mean, honestly, they were about two things, right? They were about, about relocation to the West and the Sun Belt because a lot of people were moving there and a lot of teams started following them. And then it was about white flight, right? It was about, you know, suburbanization and being like, well, you know, uh, the people with money are moving out to the suburbs, so we need to be near them and have a place they can go and park their cars. And so that's why you see places like, like Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City, right? Which was built, right. everything, everything was being built then. Um, the nineties push, um, was, I mean, that honestly, I think mall parks may have been coined by Rob Nyer, the baseball writer. Those are the first mm-hmm. people I heard I talk right. about yeah. it. And, um, he was talking about like Sky Dome, um, and I, I would say even Camden Yards and some of the ones afterwards that had like all of these like food courts and Sky Dome has a hotel and all this other stuff put, built into it. A lot of those are downtown, right? But this was all happening at the same time as sort of the what's called the urban re- revitalization, right? You know, the era of uh, of uh, of cities. Um, the the what's it called? Somebody called the Great, um, not the Great Return. It's something like that. But you know, where the children of all the people who from white flight from the fifties started moving back in and recolonizing the cities. Um, so it goes hand in hand with that, and hand in hand with um, the desire to redevelop areas that in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s had become uh, either depopulated or just depopulated people with money, right? People who were poor had moved in and to say, oh, okay, we can use this stadium sort of as a battering ram to, you know, go in and, you know, create a whole new district that then, uh, you know, sports fans who have more money would like to go and and buy housing in. Um, So, I mean, I think in every stage of that, 
it wasn't you know none of those people were driven by by pure uh, moral goals, right? They were all driven by the desire to make money. It's just that there were different things that you made money on, right? You know, in 1880, you made money by selling streetcar tickets. In 2023, you make money by selling condos. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it makes absolute sense. I don't know sort of where we're headed from from here because I don't know whether we yeah. reached sort of the peak of uh, uh, you know downtown revitalization and, and recolonization. Um, it seems like we've you know, it's run a lot of its course, um, but I don't know where it goes from here. And I think, I mean, honestly, probably the next big factor will be climate change, right? You know, it's less going to be teams moving between the suburbs and the urban areas and more about when do all the teams in Phoenix pick up and move to Duluth, Minnesota. The good thing to the biggest story in stadium development right now is actually the opposite of that trend then, Neil. That is absolutely to Las true. Vegas. That is absolutely true, and I, it seems absolutely crazy. I don't, I don't know if you saw, but just today there was a story about how Phoenix is uh, is cutting back on uh, uh, you know expansion project that they you know to redevelop uh, areas outside the city because there's no more water. Yeah. Um, and people are constantly arguing with me. Oh no, no, no! Las Vegas does a great job conserving water. Sure, it does. But 30 years from now, you know, if the entire Southwest is pretty much depopulated, or at least no more populated than it is now. Um, that's going to be a significant problem if you have the Las Vegas A's trying to sell tickets to, you know, a state that has not, has not grown any or has shrunk. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I joke about Duluth, but honestly, when I did an article for, uh, for Defector a year or two ago, um, looking at what cities, every single sort of like urban futurist I talked to, I said, where are people going to move to? They're like, you know, Duluth, Minnesota has all this great <laughs> infrastructure because it was built for a bigger population. And, you know, right. it, the weather's going to be really nice there in another 20 years. So who knows, you know? Um, but I, I mean, I think that's, I think that's, you know, obviously it has, if that message has n- not exactly gotten through to, you know, all the sports leagues, um, I think it probably is going to over the next five to 10 years because, you know, I mean, it's again, the, the headlines are just going to grow and grow and grow, and the wildfires are just going to grow and grow and grow and all of that. Conversely, the guy who plays guitar in Mad Max Fury Road could just be the A's <laughs> entertainment for seventh inning stretch. You know? <laughs> I'd watch. <laughs> I mean, you might have to. Uh I I mean, I I do think we're we're in this really weird stage of stadiums, right? Coming out of that that sort of downtown ballpark area where where teams are starting to where they used to say we want to kind of build the ballpark downtown now they're like we want to build the downtown like around us right the braves are like are like let's build our little kind of city that people can commute to right and and i think it places baseball in this really weird position where it's less about the product on the field at this point and more about this sort of facade of like entertainment right it's like the kind of logical conclusion of late stage capitalism that like going to a baseball game means like staying in the hotel and then going to the hotel like restaurant right and then going to the bar down the street and then you go to the the baseball game right and it's like there's this weird sort of but for baseball baseball plus exactly yeah and i i don't know i just i i wonder how that contributes sort of to a sense of i don't know social alienation in this state, especially for folks who, as you mentioned, like just don't have the capital to participate and how that might define the stadium going forward. Sure. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, in the 1980s, the Yankee Stadium bleachers cost $1.50 and they were all full of people from the neighborhood who, you know, would go grab some 
fried rice from around the corner, bring it in, eat at the game, you know, and we'd go to every single game because for $1.50 you could afford it. Um, and it definitely is becoming something that is being sold to a, uh, you know, deeper pocketed market. Um, I think part of that is because there are a lot more people with ridiculous amounts of spending money now than there were in the 1980s. You know, just the the level of uh, inequality in income is so huge um, that you would almost be stupid not to try to cater to the the market of people for whom money is no object. And that's why you see, again, Las Vegas talking about building a 30,000-seat stadium for the A's. It's not because they think nobody will go see the A's, although... Probably nobody will go see the A's, right? But, you know, I mean, again, the Mets and Yankees are, are not, don't have that problem in New York, and they both built stadiums that were 10,000 seats smaller than the previous ones because the idea is create that artificial scarcity, right? Find a way that instead of having to figure out how to fill the seats, you know you're going to fill the seats, and it's just how high can we jack up the prices. Um, and then the other piece that you, know, you mentioned is like that um, team owners are realizing that you, there's only so much you can make in actually selling the tickets, right? Um, where the money, real money comes in is, I mean, you know, TV revenues also, or streaming revenues now, but also selling $20 pulled pork sandwiches and, uh, you know, everything else that you can sell in the, in the place and getting people to eat there and spend their money in there. And that's where, again, I think Skydome and Camden Yards really pioneered things because Skydome had all the food courts and all the sort of self-contained, um, you know, places to spend money that it used to be. You'd go across the street to the souvenir stand. You'd go across the street to the restaurant for the sports bar. Um, and then Camden Yards had the uh, the warehouse and Utah Street where it's like, okay, we're going to have this area that's that's sort of a like a traditional ballpark neighborhood, but it's inside our gates. We control it, right? And that sort of led up to things like, you know, the Braves Battery District and, you know, all these other areas where it's, and then, you know, the Red Sox, you know, basically taking over Yawkey Way and turning it into, you know, their sort of private gated community. Um, and so I think that, you know, that teams have realized that that's a way to make, to increase your profits, um, you know, as is probably, you know, doing additional developments around it. Um, and I remember... I don't remember which uh, which sports economist it was. So I'm not going to try and guess the name, but one of them was telling me about meeting with a years ago about meeting with a marketing guy um, and saying, you know, why does it have to be all this stuff around the you know around the game? You know, there's like all the you know the ads and there's you know trying to make you buy stuff and there's you know Ferris wheels and swimming pools like can't I? And the guy said, you know we break down marketing into different types of categories and different types of fans. And you're what we call a traditional fan. You go there to watch baseball. Let me tell you this. There's not that many of you. And I think that's sort of a, a strategy that they're taking, right? Is you're not, we're not trying to build the fan who goes to 81 games a year and, you know, brings their own food in. We're trying to go for the people who, you know, will bring the entire family three times a year, spend all the money they can, buy a lot of souvenirs, go home and make way for the next people to come in the next game. Um, and it's definitely a risk, I think, for especially for a sport like baseball, where, you know, it's perpetually the sport of, you know, 65 year old dudes. So you always have to worry about, you know, where the next generation is going to come from. Um, but it is, it's the strategy that they're taking. It hasn't, you know, bit them yet. So I, I guess I can't criticize them too much, but again, you know, I, I as someone who grew up in an era when, uh, when it was about just about, you know, going and watching baseball, I do kind of miss that. 
It's fascinating that you say that because uh, you maybe can't criticize them yet because there's not empirical evidence that this is going to fail spectacularly, but we often criticize them and suggest that this is going to fail spectacularly because it's never been harder. It's never been harder to actually go watch a baseball game and just watch a baseball game. We talk about that all the time. And it's interesting because, you know, looked at through the lens of, of a stadium, the way that they've built these stadiums, the way that they've decided where to put them, what, what to put inside of them, how to develop them, how to fund them, um, has changed the actual in-person experience of the game. But it's also just changed the way that MLB talks about itself. Like the way, the things that they decide to put marketing capital behind, the things, the places that they decide to partner with, like the notion of like an NFT baseball card. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I do think that this all kind of stems from the same, I'll call it a disease because I think that it's bad for the game. I think it's bad for people who actually want to enjoy the sport and relate to it on a, on a normal real world, not too expensive level. And I think it's all kind of, um, you know, sprung from that same idea of we want to be like this holistic wide audience where we can kind of um i guess like rent seek at in various aspects of our consumers lives and they are just consumers they're no longer fans they're kind of just consumers in the market yeah absolutely you know and but i think that's what every anyone who gets into this business because they want to make money I was going to say instead of winning championships, but even in addition to winning championships, right? I mean, I'm sure that's what the, what they're being told by Fox every year is, you know, we need a bigger market, we need a big more more eyeballs, um, and so the idea is to expand, expand, expand. Um, and I, you know, again, I agree with you. I think a lot of these these decisions are dumb, and especially when I, I've seen over the course of my lifetime. You know, again, I grew up going to Mets games and got fairly cheap tickets and I sat fairly close to the field and those seats do not exist anymore because those are the, that location behind third base in the middle level is taken up by all the luxury suites. So, you know, my son grew up going to Mets games and he sits, you know, 100 feet further or 75 feet further from the game, which changes your experience of it. Sure, you've got a big scoreboard. Uh, video screen big, it just, big, it, it, big scoreboard now sure absolutely <laughs> oh yes you see it from um, the freeway <laughs> yeah um but again it changes your experience of the game and it changes your experience of what fans you're sitting with and you know how you so it's again i i think that it probably creates more fair weather fans and fans who are going to come out just when their team is good and i think there's honestly some evidence of that i mean i haven't done like a big you know, regression analysis or anything like that. I do not have the math skills to do a big regression analysis, but I know people who do. Um, and I haven't seen anyone sort of try to figure out, you know, whether um, like older, you know, more sort of democratically designed ballparks um, tend to maintain their, uh, maintain their attendance better. Um, but there is some sort of empirical, sort of, uh, yeah, empirical evidence that like, you know, the, the Tigers, for example, always drew really well at Tiger Stadium um, because, you know, even when the Tigers were terrible, it was fun to go see a game at Tiger Stadium. Whereas if you're going to, uh, you know, one of the modern stadiums, if your team is bad, you know, it's it's not the greatest experience. You're a mile from the action. Um, and it's, you have uh, more opportunities to ask yourself why the hell you're doing this. <laughs> and you have more opportunities to ask yourself, why did I just pay 40 bucks for this as opposed to, <laughs> exactly. well, you know, yeah. I got a general mission ticket for $3. It doesn't, didn't cost me anything. So. 
I mean, so so given all of that, kind of all of this sort of context, um, I if you were someone who was kind of thinking, if you had to put your your best Dave Cavill hat on, you know, oh, <laughs> which I hope none of us ever have to do. Um, but you know, if you were kind of thinking about the the best way to sort of integrate a stadium into the city what are some of the considerations you were taking? This is obviously a, a massive question and you don't have to dictate the size of the scoreboard, for example. Um, but I'm just kind of curious the the sort of factors that you think maybe define these decisions and that have the potential to kind of go a different way if folks actually care more about, you know, being in and of the city. Like, give us yeah. your, your first hundred days of stadium planning, basically. We, like, we love this We just elected you president of building a new stadium in the 31st baseball city. Well, am, am I, all right. So am I the mayor or am I the owner of the team or am I the like person who's been assigned by the owner of the team to come in and do the design? Like, I got to figure out what my motivation is here. You are the um, God Lord oversight of building the best baseball stadium that will benefit the most people. I guess that could be the oh, mayor, man. but usually it isn't. You know? Oh man! Then I just then I just I just order order them to rebuild Tiger Stadium, and I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> well, can um, you can you talk about that a little bit? Like, what was it about Tiger Stadium specifically? I've never been there, um, so I'm mm-hmm. kind of curious what about it specifically made it so kind of enticing. So Tiger Stadium, first of all, I mean, obviously it had a ton of history, right? It was built over the you know course of the 20th century. It was right downtown in a neighborhood that was, despite you know a lot of the devastation that you know ended up uh, uh, overtaking a lot of Detroit, um, largely due to due to policy decisions that were made. Um, you know, it was still in an area that you know still had a you know fairly stable population. It had you know stores. It had all of that. Um, so, you know, even though people mostly drove to it because Detroit, everybody drives everywhere, um, it, you know, it felt like a, like a neighborhood ballpark. Um, the design was the antithesis of a modern, you know, stadium design. There were no luxury seats. And in fact, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts about some of the new stadiums is that even aside from the luxury seats, for some reason, stadium designers have thought that the last, the, the one thing that the people in the expensive seats want is to be able to see the sky. I don't know why. I don't know anyone who goes to a baseball game to look at the sky, but I guess like if they're in the dark, they feel like it's not luxurious enough. They want they, they want to be able to see everything and everyone and have it be their own personal panopticon. So <laughs> when you have these stadiums built, the upper decks not only are higher up because they're you know stacked on top of these luxury suites, but they're set back, right? They don't overhang. Tiger Stadium had a ridiculous overhang to the point where if you were sitting in the front row of the upper deck, you it was like you could hear the you know pitcher and the catcher talking. You felt like you were like like leaning over in their ear. Um, so it was a crazy good ballpark to go to. Probably not unrelated to that, it had a you know huge fan base that you know went way 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 back. So you would end up you know finding yourself sitting with somebody who'd been going to games for fifty years. Um, and it was just, it was just a really well designed, you know, it was both a place where you could have a great experience of a game if you knew nothing about baseball. And if you did know something about baseball, you would feel like, oh my God, I can look out there and expect to see Ty Cobb. So, um, you know, again, it's not the only one, but it's one of the ones that I, I really, really do mourn, especially because it had a, you know, concerted effort from a bunch of baseball fans, preservationists. Um, you know, people concerned about uh, about urban policy and urban spending who spent 
over a decade fighting to to uh, save it. Um, and then we're just, you know, in the end, unable to just because, you know, the uh, the Tigers owners, two different different Tigers Tigers owners kept coming back and eventually convinced uh, convinced the state government to pass it. So so I still mourn that one. But I, sorry, I've gotten away from your question. It was how would I design something? I mean, I guess as someone who spent a lot of time looking at uh, urban redevelopment um, in New York, but everywhere, I think the first thing is sort of do no harm, right? How do you find a location that is going to be able to hopefully integrate with the surrounding neighborhoods, but even more than that, not devastate them, right? So you want something that is not going to, you know, land like a flying saucer and and cause everything around it to be knocked down. Um, So you have to figure out, you know, basically, how can we recreate Wrigley Field if Wrigley Field weren't in Wrigleyville to start with? And that's hard, right? I totally, yeah. um, and I think there are probably some places that have done a little better. I'm trying to think of if anywhere that stands out. Um, I, I'll give the Giants um, some credit, you know, that's the Giants Stadium is somewhere that wasn't being, it was a, it was a bus depot, I think, or something like that. Um, wasn't being used for anything. Obviously, the gentrification of South of Market, you know, changed that area completely. But where the Giants put their stadium was sort of went hand in hand with this, you know, redevelopment that was happening already. Um, and it's easy to get to on public transit. You know, there's stuff around it. It feels like a neighborhood. Uh, is everything perfect? No, but I mean, it's one of the ones that I, you know, don't feel sort of sick to my stomach going to. Um, and I think it'll probably stand the test of time a little bit better than, uh, you know, so, than some of the other ones that have been built. So, so yeah, go in with some respect for the local neighborhoods, respect for the people who live there, um, try and figure out what they need, um, try and obviously figure out how the funding will work, try and figure out how to design something. It's another nice thing about, about, uh, uh, Oracle, it's called now. I've lost track of the current name of the giant stadium, right? Yeah. Um, is that because it was built in a really compact area, because that was the only land they could get, and because I think of also some of the seismic concerns, right? That you couldn't build these soaring food courts, right? It really does feel very compact and very and very sort of uh dense, right? You feel like you're in a crowd of people when you're going there. Um, and I think that's, that's a nice feeling. So I think they managed to sort of luck between design and luck and the fact that, um, voters in San Jose and San Francisco had both the ability to vote on these uh, stadium proposals that they kept coming up with in the eighties and nineties and also voted them down. Um, you know, we saw, it's kind of the, the, one of the better examples of a stadium that has both a reasonable, you know, small amount of public money, a good design and a decent urban character. Um, but again, sort of that had to be the perfect storm of, uh, of things coming together. Yeah. Well, I, and, and as an A's fan, not to give the giants too much credit here, but like they, they really, I do think have done a pretty good job of, of not only, saying, Hey, here's a ballpark. You can come and, and visit us, but really doing that sort of outreach, right? Doing programs in the community that actually enable getting kids access to baseball for free, right? They have their junior yep. giants program, which I participated in as a kid. Cause you could just go and like play baseball. Right. And like, I think things like that are too often 
overlooked, right? In these conversations about, you know, community ag- agreements or community right. benefit agreements, right? The other CBA on this podcast <laughs> and, and like all, and all these other discussions, I think that really falls by the wayside. Again, as you mentioned earlier in favor of, well, we're going to create X number of jobs. It's going to create X amount of tax dollars. And I just think that that rings hollow for most actual fans or, or even especially non-fans. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to keep bringing you back to the money because, uh, you know, again, it's more than just how it gets paid for. But I feel like if this rent seeking, if this, you know, the, this carrot of you can get hundreds of millions of dollars of free money, right? We're not out there. Then team owners would have to start thinking completely differently, right? They would probably have to think more like um, European soccer teams, right? Again, which yeah. not that European soccer teams are idyllic. And there's certainly lots wrong with them, but at least they're trying to figure out how to market to the fans, right? You know, they're, that's their job one. They're not thinking, how can we threaten to move to another city in order to get the most money? Um, and, you know, you just really, it, it has really distorted American sports in such a huge way um, that it's become about chasing free money rather than about putting a product on the field and then, and then uh, you know, trying to sell tickets to it. The fact that we've had so many years of not just the A's, but other teams deliberately getting rid of their good players so that they can lose games, right? Tells you there's something wrong, right? That's not how sports is supposed to operate. You know, you, you, you keep saying you hate to keep bringing it back to the money, but I, I would love to keep bringing it back to the money. I, is there like, even a pathway to an ethical way to fund the stadium in 2023? Like, is there even, is there even a, a re, any sort of realistic scenario where you could see this is the plan that we're going to fund it? And um, I actually feel good about this. Oh man, I can answer that about four different ways. Um, those would be absolutely no way, <laughs> only very occasionally. And I'm not sure what the fourth is yet, but we'll start with the first three. Um, absolutely, the answer is all of this could go away if Congress would just pass a bill saying we are going to tax uh, sports subsidies or any kind of corporate subsidies, right, at some extortionately high rate. And then there's no benefit, right? You know, if the A's get half a billion dollars by moving to Las Vegas, then if John Fisher's IRS bill goes up by half a billion dollars, he's not going to do it, right? Because there's no benefit to him. Um, The no way answer is, of course, that that bill was proposed in 1998 by a Minnesota representative named David Mingy and did not even get a committee hearing. So that's not going anywhere anytime fast. Um, The other question is sort of how, when you talk about how can we get this done ethically, is the problem is that most of the time, getting it done ethically is not the goal, right? Even getting it done is not the goal. It's really just about the subsidies, right? Mm-hmm. So if you say to a team, I'm sorry, we're not going to give you money hand over fist, um, you'll have to find a way to build it yourselves. The owner is most likely to say, well, that's okay then. I'll just wait until somebody is willing to give me the money, Right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we just saw that in, uh, in Calgary when the flames uh, arena went up in price and they said, Oh, this thing we spent years and years saying we absolutely must have it's too expensive. Now we're going to come back later and try and renegotiate this. Um, so I think in a world where you did not have massive subsidies, yes, some buildings would still get built. 
the Warriors Arena is a perfect example, right? Not to keep coming back to the Bay Area, right? Um, and and again, not to argue about whether it's better for the Warriors to be in Oakland or in San Francisco, but San Francisco did not have a viable arena. That's insane, right? The Cow Palace does not count. Um, so they, the fact that there was this, you know, huge vacuum for concerts on that side of the bay, um, and you know, more of the fans with money lived there, and all this other stuff made it actually makes sense for the Warriors to move, even though they didn't get a huge, a huge subsidy. You know, occasionally other places you'll see, you know, there's a, a, a market that's so good. Again, Seattle with the Kraken is probably a decent example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here's something we can actually make money on because it's, it's sort of a, a vacuum that, uh, that we can uh, take advantage of. Um, but in most cases, you're not going to see the new stadium. You know, would the Braves have torn down Turner Field and built their new stadium if 20 years later, if they hadn't been getting a ton of money for it, I can't imagine they would have, even with the prospect of being able to build this ballpark district around or whatever. You know, the, the Rangers would not have tor- abandoned their own stadium and built a new one right next to it that's exactly the same, only uglier and with a roof. The airplane <laughs> hangar. The airplane <laughs> hangar, if they had not, if there had not been money in it for them. So it, that's the problem, you know, and I think. You know, if you look at the 70s and 80s, you saw an occasional stadium here, an occasional stadium there. Um, and I think it would be a lot more like that, if not for this distorting effects of, you know, not we want stadiums, but um, we want money. And the way to get the money is to build the stadium. Because if you go to the state legislature and say, I would like half a billion dollars, please, they say, we're sorry, we don't have half a billion dollars for you. If it's if you go to the state legislature and say, we would like half a billion dollars for this stadium that we're building that will create jobs, they say, oh, okay. Or at, at worst, they'll say, well, we have to go and think about it for a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah. That's the fictional reality that we accept, you know, for whatever reason. <laughs> Given kind of all of this, I mean, are there are there particular sort of developments or trends in the sort of ongoing saga of baseball uh, baseball stadiums that I guess give you maybe hope for the relationship the teams have with kind of their host cities? Are we just kind of in this spot where we're sort of at the whim of you know a handful of elected officials and like paid? lobbyists on whether or not like the the team is going to stay here you know or the 30 billionaires who elect them yeah right yeah exactly exactly as someone who's been writing about this for almost 30 years i have long (laughs) since abandoned anything resembling hope um i mean there are a few things right i think that it's encouraging to see that teams are starting to rip out luxury boxes and turn to at least club seats or more sort of open air seats because they realize that, oh, even rich people don't want to sit in a glassed in living room. I mean, some do, right? But most of them want to go to a game to actually feel like they're at the game. I think that's somewhat encouraging. So you're seeing a little bit better design there. Um, I think that uh, while teams have not, uh, have not, you know, gotten rid of the, uh, uh, upper decks that are 10 miles away from the field that have at least realized that they have to think about it a little bit more and try to be a little bit more creative. You know, maybe in the outfield, the upper deck will be a little, little, little bit lower. Um, you know, you don't see anything as bad as uh, the White Sox stadium, right? Which was infamous for my, my favorite stat in all the years of, of uh, uh, reporting on this stuff was something that John Pastier, who was a ballpark ex- expert, told me, which was that the 
front row of the new Comiskey Park upper deck is further from the field than the back row of the old Comiskey Park upper deck was. <laughs> um, and you you go there and sit in that upper deck and you will not be surprised at that because it feels like you're a mile from the action. So again, they're, they're trying a little bit harder. Um, I certainly think it's better that stadiums are, you know, again, all of the redevelopment stuff aside, I think it's better for stadiums to be in, in, uh, in urban areas and, you know, be accessible to everyone and reachable from everyone. And, you know, I mean, part of the reason they're putting them there is just because baseball, you know, football, you can have in the suburbs because everyone's driving there on a Sunday baseball, people have to be able to go to Tuesday night games after work. And right. if you build your stadium yeah. in the Eastern suburbs and they live in the Western suburbs, they're not going to go to the game because they're going in the wrong direction. So, so a lot of these things have sort of, you know, there's, there's small little bits and pieces. I, I am huge, a huge fan of the seats that are angled toward home plate, which I did not see for, I think Pittsburgh was the first place that I saw that it may have been other places that did it first, but that like sort of brought a little joy to my heart, you know, just for a moment to be like, at least someone is thinking about, we want you to be able to see the game as opposed to just, we want you to be able to see the ads. Yeah. So yeah, little, little bits and pieces here. And, and, and I'm encouraged by the fact that, you know, again, no matter how many decades that we are into this, when you do put it to a vote of the public, the public is pretty critical. You know, I mean, the public does not want to spend a whole lot of money, public money on these things, you know, which is understandable when you think about the fact that these are the same people who, you know, there are two types of public, right? They're the people who don't care about sports and they're the people who care about sports and who have already paid for their tickets and, you know, been charged so much for these things and are already mad enough at the owners about like, <laughs> I are, you know, I paid this much for season tickets and this, what, what kind of crap team you give me? Um, that it's understandable that, the, you know, people are going to be going to be critical. So, so I think all of that is encouraging. I think the fact that, um, you know, we're however many decades down the road and it doesn't seem like the trends have changed it does not make me hopeful for the near term future, but right. you know, hopefully the the uh, the arc of justice bends faintly towards better stadium policies. So I'll I'll hold on to that faint glimmer of hope for future generations at least, so, if there are any. Neil, what I'm hearing from you is that the only way to build the urbanist dream ballpark is to nationalize baseball <laughs> and put it to a vote of the public. That would work very well. Um, I think uh, uh, change probably, the incentive structure. Pro- probably, you know, if, if if there are you have any listeners who are who are crazed libertarians, I think the you know let's create an actual free market in teams and you know make it so that. Uh, uh, you can have as many leagues as you want, and there's promotion and relegation, and you know that that actually you know would yeah, probably work compelling. pretty. That would, be, but it would work pretty well too. You know, it worked better than what we have now, right? The uh, 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 sort of uh, state capitalism is the worst of all worlds, <laughs> and that's the one we're in right now. Well, I think that we concur on that front, right, yeah. Alex? Yes, absolutely. Uh, is there is there anything else you want to add um, before we let you go? Um, uh, to to kind of put a a bow on this sort of really wide ranging conversation. Um, I think it's encouraging and I think people should be encouraged to try to dig deep into these deals, right? You know, it's hard. Journalism, as I think hopefully everyone listening knows, is not in its best state in its history, right? So there are a fewer and fewer number of outlets um, that are, you know, putting less and less time into actually covering these issues, um, which is why I'm glad that there are, you know, things like podcasts that are trying to uh, take us up some of the slack. Um, but I think it's important that, you know, not just to say, oh, you know, 
the government's going to go and waste my money anyway. I guess at least if I get a new stadium out of it, you know, that it could be worse. You know, this is your money. These are your teams, no matter what the, you know, who owns them. They are the teams that you have built with your fandom. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's it's important to you. It's an, it's an important policy decision. And you should absolutely demand the right to have a say in these things, whether it's going and testifying, whether it's angrily subtweeting people um you know it is uh it is absolutely something that everybody should have a stake in so i hope that uh you know people will continue to get angry about this stuff and make themselves heard even if eight times out of ten they just get ignored fighting the good fight is still worth it that's a, a hearty vote in favor of bullying dave cavill whenever possible oh absolutely uh, <laughs> shout at him on the street i you have my permission uh neil demoss Thank you very much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You can find Neil's work um, at Field of Schemes. Uh, he's Neil Demoss on Twitter. Anything else? Any any other things that you're working on that you want to highlight specifically for people? Uh, no. Like I said, I write occasionally for Defector. There's a great site in New York called Hellgate, hellgatenyc.com, if anyone wants to right check on. out that I'm working on a story on right now that uh, is at least tangentially about sports stadiums. So uh, keep an eye on that. But uh, no, thank you. And the, the 53 minutes flew by. I'm a little bit more child. Okay, thank you, Neil. Fun one. That was that was a fun one. That's one uh, that's gonna stick with me for a while. The, the the interaction that he cited between the the economist and like the the marketing person, where he says you are you are what we what's known as a traditional fan, <laughs> and there aren't many of you. That one hit a little too deep. Do you consider yourself traditional? You're kind of on the cutting edge of a lot of these things. You know, <laughs> you, you're yeah. signing up for. Various activities. You're having your hand scanned. Yep. Uh, you are. We well, own multiple baseball NFTs. That's true. <laughs> you have a whole yep. portfolio cadre of baseball NFTs. Yeah. You, I actually, I actually own Liberty Media st- uh, stock because I just want true. to support. You're super leveraged in the crypto space, mm-hmm. and that's always been true of you. You're like yeah. first wave. Yeah. Um. What else? Oh, you're the president of the MLB Fans Union. <laughs> oh, right. You're kind of approaching the game from many different aspects. You're a, a fantasy tried. baseball legend, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. I'm just kidding. You're, so you're a traditional fan. You're here for the love of the game, baby. I am. I, I try to be, despite what obstacles the league might throw in my way. Really quickly before we get out of here, like five or six people have tagged us in this news from CBS News uh, that Alex Rodriguez patron saint of the podcast, uh, was recently diagnosed with early stage gum disease. I would just like to say here in the outro of this show, we're wishing A-Rod the best. It seems as though uh, it's relatively under control. 65 million Americans have this gum disease, according to Alex Rodriguez. Alex, can I read you a quote from this uh, news article? Mm -hmm. Rodriguez, or A-Rod as he is known, has partnered with the health products company Aura Pharma to help raise awareness. He urged people to take care of their teeth and see their dentist. Is there a single sphere of life that A-Rod would not find a company to partner with in? In any life event, he truly is one of a kind. He truly is true to himself. He is. Yeah. The the man's commitment to commodification <laughs> is truly unmatched. 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 Um. Health and happiness to our good friend Alex Rodriguez. Of course. Health and happiness to all of our listeners. Thank you to everybody for listening this week. We will be back in one week where we will do our uh, CBA deep dive, which I'm excited to do with you and for all of our listeners to get to participate in. 
Uh, we'll see you then. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!